0: The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. So I'd like to open up uh, with an illustration. There's a lot of musical people here. Uh, I confess that I am not. I can work the stereo on the car. Uh, I'm really, really quite good at it. Um, But my, my children are in band and orchestra over at let's get this right, Jewish Street, Southside, and Memorial, and they do this really excellent thing every year, the Step Up concert. Is anyone familiar with this? Any, if you've got kids in orchestra or band, it's a really neat thing. What they do is they get the high school band and orchestra, the middle school band and orchestra, and the elementary band and orchestra, and they get them all together, and they do one concert in, in one night. Uh, so what's really neat about this, and I'm super emotional about my kids' things anyway, so I just start weeping at like, just about everything that they do. Uh, it's, it's a little bit embarrassing. Cynthia usually you know, scooches down when I start openly weeping at their events. But it's this really neat event where you get to see the whole scope of what it means to be a musician in Manchester, so if you're familiar with uh, elementary school bands, uh, Cynthia is, is an elementary music teacher, so we're, we're immersed in this world. It's not quite the BSO, but it is on their level. But you get to see the whole continuum of a beginning musician sounding exactly the way that they should sound, right? They're, they're an elementary band. They're, they're super nervous. Their palms are sweaty. They're dropping the trumpet. Like, they're, just, they're, they're a bit of a wreck. But you get to see the middle school band where it starts to sound a little bit, a little bit more like music, and then you get to see the end where the high school orchestra is just this magnificent display of music in the city of Manchester. And what's really neat about this is you get to see the whole thing in one night. You get to see the whole, the whole continuum, uh, which which I appreciate. And at the last concert I was at, the elementary band director, um, I was. Not in a in a great place psychologically, and I was watching him and listening to the elementary band And I was just watching how he responded to them And I don't have any patience at all when it comes to teaching kids like music So I just what I really admired about him Was his enthusiasm for what they were doing and you would think by watching him conduct that he was directing the BSO like he was enthusiastic, he was supportive, he was encouraging, and they were an elementary band, right? I'm not, I'm not dissing them, but if you kids play musical instruments, you realize you you pay your dues with hot cross buns and uh, what's that other one? Um, you you pay your dues with that stuff so that you can that you can hear the the really good stuff down the road. And I just had that really alter my view of God in some pretty profound ways, where I think. This to me is just the perfect analogy for what God is like, that here we are, as imperfect as we are, elementary band students just trying to play a note and to have the conductor up there and to be so over-the-top enthusiastic and supportive and encouraging. And then for kids in that moment, to be able to see the whole vision of what's it, what it's going to be like to be a music student in Manchester to get to look up to high schoolers and say i'm struggling on my violin here but if i keep at it i'm going to perhaps be as good as those high school students who are all like wearing tuxedos and it's it's really a top top notch operation and i think as i think about god as i think about the christian life that analogy is is really effective for how i think about my christianity And to be able to compress that whole continuum of musicianship, I had to say it really slowly, to compress that all down into one night and to get a whole sweeping vision of that all at once is really a profound experience. And I think that is what the Christian life is like. So what I want to talk about today is actually being oriented to the future. And I think that this is a significant category uh, in the New Testament, in the Old Testament as well, but, but in, in the New Testament. Um, because part of, as we turn to chapter 13 in 1 Corinthians, part of what Paul has to do with the Corinthians is to alter the way that they view the world, right? So there's a certain Jewish way of thinking, which is just very simple in terms of thinking of the present age and the age to come. Like that's how Jewish theology works. That there is the present age, which is marked by sin and competition and corruption, by injustice. There's the present age and then there's the age to come, which is God's future, God's future of justice, God's future of rest, of security. And that's the way that they think, right? So as uh, the Jews are living under Roman oppression, they have this forward-looking, uh, this forward-looking orientation that they look toward God's future, and that helps them to live in the present. Now, they believed that the resurrection would mark this change, that the, the present age would give way to the age to come in the resurrection, and they believed in a general resurrection of all the righteous. So when Jesus comes, just to very quickly uh, get, to my, get to my point, in Jesus, an individual has been resurrected in the, right in the middle of history. Like, that's the confusing thing. Not resurrection, right? Most of them believed in resurrection. But the idea that God would invade the center of history and start the new age now was something that they couldn't quite get their minds around. But it's still just a slight shift in their thinking. For the Corinthians, Greco-Roman philosophical thought, they're not thinking in those terms. They're just sitting around talking about ideas. And they might have some ethical framework, Or they might not. It's just a bunch of people sitting around at Starbucks arguing about the latest ideas. They'll come back tomorrow, run it all back. But the ideas don't affect them the ways um, that it would have affected somebody in terms of their Jewish thinking, in terms of the present age and the age to come. So just to say very briefly, uh, God's new age has broken into the present, and that orients how we live. The New Testament, in other ways, I think, uh, well, let me just start with my main point here. Love's permanence orients us to God's future. So if that's on the slide, excellent. Just amazing. Um, So God's love intruding into the present orients us toward his future. And the New Testament will talk about this in other ways. Uh, So actually, when Dave Hamilton preached during Advent, he used the phrase already and not yet, and that's exactly what it is, that we're already God's children, and yet there's still, we're not quite at the fullness of all that God has for us. Um, But it's started. So we're living in this weird sort of overlap of the ages where God's invasion has begun in the resurrection of Jesus, that that's God's flag in the ground saying, it's all mine. And then the rest of it is the working out of that. So here's how the New Testament puts it. Um, Just eight verses apart in Romans, Paul says, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. So it's already happened. You have received it. It's there. But then eight verses later, we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons. So it's not a contradiction. It's just a paradox. And I think if you're to talk about any part of your life, you understand how that works, that I'm already something, but I'm not yet. There's probably lots of analogies for that, but I am an employee of this company. Now I've got to sit through 72 hours of really boring videos to tell me how to enter into the fullness of being an employee of this company. Um, And there's videos and there's forms to sign, and I'm ready to fall asleep even just thinking about it. But this is the framework. If we could go to the next slide. This is... Uh, 1 John 3.2 Beloved we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared but we know that when he appears we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is and there's other places as well where the New Testament imperative is to put to death the old man to take on, to take on the new so I think that that's a pretty uh, essential New Testament framework so we begin living the new age now That is the New Testament framework. And what I'd like to do in terms of getting into 1 Corinthians 13 is to pick back up in uh, 13.7 with the statement that love endures all, love hopes all, love believes all. That's forward thinking, right? That looks to the future. Several weeks ago, Jacob had the Tim Keller quote about marriage uh, where there's just tons of enthusiasm and excitement for what a person eventually becomes, Right? made all the more exciting because you were anticipating it all along, that there's excitement about that because you always knew that that person could enter into the fullness of what God had for them. And there's just the enthusiastic triumph of God's kingdom and their purposes and individuals. And we want to recognize not only what individuals can become by God's grace, but what all of reality is changed into. And the love of God above all else makes that possible. So again, love's permanence orients us to God's future. So love points us to a different country, uh, beyond the border of the present age, marked by fear and corruption and pride and competition and jealousy, striving, and it ushers us into the new age, marked by the presence of God, of contentment, of security, rest from our striving, peace with God and with one another. And that starts now. That's not something that we have to to wait for. So as we talk about the virtues in 1 Corinthians 13, they're oriented toward the future and they're oriented redemptively. So as I was thinking about it uh, more this week, that it's not just that we're patient because being patient is the thing that we're supposed to do because we're supposed to do it, right? God is patient and patience is redemptive. It doesn't mean that we don't get frustrated with each other because there can be righteous frustration. But it's it's oriented in hope toward what a person can become, to what God's future can be. There was um, love keeps no record of wrongs. It doesn't mean that we don't confront each other. It doesn't mean that we don't confront sin in each other's lives or, or other things that we see. What it means is it's oriented redemptively, right? We're not We're not teeing off on people because we can, because we want to have this power play and we want to psychologically abuse other people. Confronting sin is redemptive. It always points towards God's future. And to get back to Corinth, their overemphasis on the gifts, which is still where we are, the Corinthians are just hitching their trailer to a truck that isn't going where they need to go. It's not that the gifts aren't important. They need a bigger vision of God's future beyond the here and now and the week to week of where they're ultimately heading, and to orient themselves to that vision and to see how it affects the present. And I think we do this a lot intuitively. Uh, In education, we have what we call understanding by design, or they've probably changed the name of it three times, but it's still exactly the same thing, but you can put a different cover on the book and sell it again. It's exactly the same thing. You start with the end result, and then you work backwards toward what you want to have happen. So I think as a parent of these are the skills, and I don't think so much about skills as habits and dispositions I want my kids to have and I don't start them there because like a five-year-old reading Shakespeare isn't really going to be productive. Uh, But I, I start to think about what's developmentally appropriate. So that's understanding by design. If we're oriented to God's future, what we do is we see this is the vision of the future, and let's scale that back to right now. So what should I be doing right now in order to help that to happen? Um, it's not like we just sit around and wait for God to download His software onto our hardware, and then all of a sudden, poof, in heaven we understand particle physics and string theory. That I, at least to me, that that's not that's not really how it works. So, anyway, moving right along, uh, let's dig into the text. So, first, verses eight to ten, love's permanence over the gifts. Paul writes that love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they'll cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So in verse 8, Paul returns to the gifts that he mentioned in verses 1 to 3 at the beginning of chapter 13 to prophecy, to tongues, and knowledge. And these are going to disappear. That's what Paul says. And a radical, radical interpretation there. It's just exactly what it says. And it makes total sense that there's gonna come a day when prophecy's not gonna be necessary. <laughs> you think about the new heavens and new earth. You picture teaching a class on like Paul's letters or something, as Paul's walking by the room. Right. Well, what Paul meant here, and Paul sticks his head in, no, I didn't. Like that that like there's no point. You don't have to, you don't have to have which is going to make heaven, like, really interesting. All these theories that we had on all these people, like, that's not what I meant at all. Um, I, I can't wait for that. But anyway, I lost my spot. Um, so anyway, God's going to be fully present among his people. So prophecy, tongues, knowledge, they're, they're destined to pass away. In the new heavens and the new earth, we're going to know all that we need to know, right? And we're going to be content with that. The gift of tongues will cease because it's not going to be necessary, Paul says that love never ends. Love is currency that's always good. Where the gifts are for a time and they're eventually going to go away, love endures. So cultivating gifts with no regard to love for God's people is just pointless. Or even worse, cultivating the gifts at the expense of God's people is even worse. But more positively, I think this orients us in the moment that we can practice the gifts in a context of self-giving love for the edification of the body, all the while oriented toward God's bright and glorious future. That how sweet would that be if our motivations to speak in tongues or to prophesy or to administrate, that our motivation was that we're oriented to God's bright and glorious future. I think that it gives grace for the moment, right? We can appreciate the forest while we're trying to figure out the trees. And again, it gives us a compelling vision of the future. Um, so our knowledge and our prophecy is partial in the present age. And this partial is going to be displaced when the perfect comes. Um, so if we have the next slide, I just want to talk about this for a second. What is the perfect? That's um, So I I've probably said this before. I didn't grow up in the church, so I wasn't conditioned to read texts in a particular way. So one interpretation that I heard early on was that the perfect refers to the Bible, that once the Bible is written, that sign gifts are no longer necessary because the perfect has come. We have the whole counsel of God in the Bible. Is that anybody's, like, that's kind of what you heard growing up or... Okay, so um, so I wasn't conditioned to read the Bible in that way. So the first time I heard that, I, I contorted my face in all kinds of obnoxious ways and didn't really understand what the speaker was talking about. And I hadn't been conditioned in the church that it's probably not a good idea to ask a minister a question. And it's definitely not a good idea to ask a follow-up question of the minister when you think he's wrong. So, I hadn't been conditioned in that world where somebody said it, I believe it, that settles it. I just, I thought, that doesn't even make sense. And I, I don't mean to mock at all. Like, if that's your viewpoint, I'd, I'd love to talk with you about it. And I don't want to mock or set up straw people. I just thought, that view doesn't really seem to make sense. So, I just want to address it here quickly. Um, and I think that if you read it in context of verse 12, I think it... Kind of makes a little bit of sense, but I I am open to being wrong. So, verse 12, if you go down a little bit, is for now, that's like the Greek word for now means now. I don't know, just settle in. Um, We see in a mirror dimly, but then, which compels the question, well, when? I think it refers back to when the perfect comes. But then, will see face to face. Now, again, that's that Greek word again. I know in part then, when, I think in the context it refers to when the perfect comes. I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. So just to to tip my hand, I believe that the perfect refers to the full renewal of everything in Christ. I think new heavens, full-blown new heavens, new earth, all that stuff. When the perfect comes... The imperfect disappears. I haven't heard too many people seriously argue that right now, since the Bible's complete, we know fully as we've been fully known. Um, and I'll talk about it a little bit later. Even the image of face to face is is doesn't fit this interpretation. I think it much it makes much more sense to see this as the end game. Uh, as the final achievement of God's purposes. That's my Avengers reference for the day. I was going to refer to Captain America at the beginning, but then I missed it. So, so I had to... It doesn't make any sense to go back to it now, so it wouldn't, it wouldn't even fit. Um, so anyway, love's permanence over the gifts. The fact that the gifts are going to pass away doesn't make them useless, but it does put them in proper perspective. It does frame our thinking about the gifts. And as I go back to the illustration of the orchestra, that we're tuning ourselves to the future of God's love, that we're orienting ourselves to being high school orchestra players with with lots of skill, Um, as we tune ourselves to God's love, we have to recognize that the purpose of the gifts is for the building up of the church, for the edification of others, for the common good, and to point others to Jesus. It's not as the Corinthians seem to be exercising them, a chance to show your spiritual muscle or to build yourself up with disregard to other people. It doesn't mean the gifts are useless. It just means you're hitching your trailer to a truck that isn't going the full distance, right? They're still good. They're still a gift and God wants us using them, but they're not, they're not the end game. So love's permanence over the gift. Second, in verse 11, love's permanence matures us. Let's just look at verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. And here, it's just a very simple, I think inherent critique of the Corinthian way with Paul basically telling them to grow up. And I I appreciate that. He's calling them to maturity, specifically in their community life and their attitude and their orientation and their exercising of the gifts. The way that they've been oriented just isn't, uh, it isn't fit for God's people. It doesn't take too much careful interpretation <laughs> to imagine what Paul's talking about. Anyone ever met a kid? Just maybe once. You, you saw them at a distant, like, wildlife. Um, for children, the axis of the entire universe runs down their spine. There is no regard for the past or the future. There is just the need of The moment. And it's not just the need of the moment, it's their need of the moment. Can I have that toy? Food, hug, bottle, attention, food. Toy, attention, food, water. And for a child, I think this is developmentally appropriate. If you've been around kids, they're just, that's that's how they are. Um, I have this image in my head of like, mom or dad outside in the street fighting the zombie apocalypse, trying to save the universe, while a kid comes out on the porch like with their sippy cup. Like, am I getting this water, or are you getting it? Like, there's just moms fighting zombies, and you know, kids just like, so, mom, we doing this, or what? I'll get this cup myself. And you think about it. They can't reach the sink. I mean, come on. There actually is this place where you can go, and everything is to scale. So you get a sense of like, what does it look like for a little kid to walk up to a chair that size? Cause it's like taller than them. And you just think, wow, that's really disoriented. So they make things to, like, to scale. So there's these massive chairs, like what would it be to be like a kid and, and have chairs be this big? I think it's interesting. Um, but I think it's, um, I think it is, it's developmentally appropriate. Um, they're inherently selfish because they need to survive. Sorry, kids, I know you're in the service now, but that's just reality. You, you, you're inherently selfish because you need to survive. But as we mature, we put aside these inclinations and, praise God, notice that there's other human beings around and that they have needs too. So if I pivot just one degree back to the situation in Corinth, their immaturity is shown in their self-centeredness and in their need for instant gratification. They're getting drunk during communion, Right? that's crazy. Like there's all kinds, I mean, that's the title of the series, Good News for Bad Christians. Like that's messed up. And there's just so many immature moments um, that they have and that all of us have. They're exercising gifts in ways that ignore the health of the community because they haven't yet developed the full scope of why they're exercising the gifts in the first place. So if I take the orchestra analogy again, the Corinthians are just playing whatever music they think is right, and they're not paying attention to each other at all or to the conductor. Like, they're just playing random notes and and trying to overpower each other in that way. But when we're tuned to love, we want what's going to last. So when we cultivate love, we're asking God, give me what will last. Help me to participate in things that will last. And we ache to participate in the concert and not just to do our own thing, right? As individuals, we're not, we're not as compelling as we are all together. Like when you're a part of a concert, that's excellent. Like you just think of the magnitude of all of that coming together in unity. And I think it's, it's compelling. So love gives us a vision of maturity, moving us past our own needs and wants and desires and into something greater and grander. The building of the kingdom through being a blessing, not just to each other, but a blessing to those who don't yet know Christ. So, finally, verses 12 and 13. We've seen love's permanence over the gifts. We've seen how love matures us. Verses 12 and 13. Love's permanence clears our vision. For we now see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So to return to the opening example, the analogy of tuning ourselves to God's love as elementary band students, sitting in the band, it's not always easy or pleasant. You don't always see the full scope of what is happening. Our vision is skewed. We can't see the reasoning behind the why of what we're doing in a given moment. We might play the occasional off note, um, or you might play the frequent off note in your spiritual life. There might be tiny acts of rebellion. There might be large acts of rebellion. There's times of confusion. There's even doubt and disillusionment. And Paul addresses this. He says, Now we see in a mirror dimly that now we know in part. Everything can be partial or confusing. We can become too focused in a moment and lose the forest for the trees. And recognizing that this happens is critical, I think. Like recognizing the reality of it uh, at a moment of disillusionment is, is important. Because realizing the brightness of God's future can make the darkness around us all the more distressing. And if you're already there in your mind thinking of full-blown new heavens and new earth, the injustices that you see around you can become crippling if we can't acknowledge that we see in part and that we look in a mirror dimly. And realizing all the more that the darkness is not out there but it's in part in me. It's in all of us. And that makes it even more distressing. But at that time, we'll see face to face. And that's an image where I can hang out for quite a while because I think to go back to the interpretation of the perfect being the Bible, it says we're going to see face to face, not face to book. And this is a personal image. It's an It's personal interaction. It's personal connection. It's a portrait of intimacy. It's not abstract ideas. It's not a list of things that we believe. It's face-to-face interaction. And at that moment, that's what we're going to see. So if I could go back one more slide, it would actually be forward. Oh, I'm past that, right? Even further, maybe the slides aren't in order. Yeah, keep going. One more. No, this is backwards. The slides are going backwards. It's the Oh, I'm sorry. Did I say back? That's the thing where you have to say what I or hear what I mean and not what I say. Yeah. I come across this a lot. Let's give it up for Steph. Thank you, Steph. That was speaker error. That was totally my fault. Uh, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. Even in our personal interactions now, we're skewed. And I think that we see people as we are, not as they are. We're not always good at listening and hearing and seeing. And we struggle to get past our own distortions or even to communicate our own need to be known. Like that's another image that I could pick up and, and talk about for way longer than you'd be interested in talking about it. But I think that the deepest fundamental need I can think of is the need to be known. Um, whether people put it in these terms or not, people are desperate for it. There's no other reason for social media to exist right? So whatever we think about the particulars of, of social media, it shows an almost universal human need to be known. And if you've experienced that in relationship with people, I think you know what I'm what I'm talking about. And especially, like, because I, I teach in Manchester, so this is heavy on my heart, like, all the time, that if you don't have that at key developmental stages, it throws off everything. It skews your relationships, your views of other people, um, it's just, it's dark. So I think that that there's just such a profound need to be known. And in the case of our Christian life, it's going to take something as radical as the death and resurrection uh, to get us to see clearly for the first time. And this passage even starts to hint at chapter 15, This this I think it's 58 verses, this magisterial climax of the book that talks about the resurrection. It's going to take something that radical to get us to see God clearly and to see each other clearly and to know as we are known. So it takes something that radical to open us up beyond our own bias and our own insecurity, our own selfishness, our own competition, our own striving, to open us up to the whole scope of what God has been doing all along. It's not something that's going to happen now. But it doesn't mean that we can't anticipate it in the present. It's just going to take our own death and the resurrection to put us up over that. So at that moment, uh, we'll know fully as we have been fully known. There's lots of things to focus on there. I'm just going to focus on one. What matters here is not our knowledge of God, but God's knowledge of us. And I think we place a lot of emphasis on our knowing, on our understanding And I suppose that's, I I get it. Uh, But I think that this is saying that any knowing on our part is contingent upon God knowing us first. And it's a relational knowing. Relational, not factual, right? So if your vision of the new heavens and the new earth is having every tricky question you've ever thought about be answered in some sort of like Bible answer man sort of format, that's just too small, right? I, I just, I don't think that, that that's it. It's relational knowing. And I think that's what community is all about. So there's a couple other slides. I apologize that they're so compressed. Uh, first is Galatians 4.9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, so it's not just about us knowing, it's about being known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? And then just a couple of chapters ago in 1 Corinthians 8. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, and this is that factual understanding. This knowledge puffs up, and that's the word for arrogant, right? So when Paul says that they're arrogant, that's it. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. But if, and verse 3, but if anyone loves God, he's known by God. So that orients us to God's future, a future day when we will know as we have been fully known. So I wanna close with this. What does this orientation to the future produce in us? And I was just, this is my own reflection on the passage. I'm sure you have things that you could add to this. These are just a couple quick things that I wanna walk through. What does this produce in us? First of all is grace. Uh, Things are not now as they will be eventually. So God's expectations are not ratcheted up impossibly high. We follow Jesus who is forever interceding for us, who's offered the perfect sacrifice of himself, and he shows us the heart of God who's just fundamentally with us and for us. There's grace for the moment as we live in this overlap oriented to God's bright and glorious future but still stuck in our own, our own slavery, our own sin. There's, there's grace. Second is humility. Uh, right now, everything is it's tentative, right? We know in part and we prophesy in part. So even properly oriented to Jesus, we still carry some, some lingering corruption. Our motives are mixed. We can be mistaken and flat out wrong both in what we say and in how we say it. So we need to maintain humility and be open to reconcile, to apologize, to confess sin. We need to have uh, humility because we're not there yet. Third is, at least in my mind, it produces longing. And there's coming a day when intimacy is the norm. That there's no more hiding, there's no more pretending, there's no more shame. And there's restoration to the fellowship that human beings had with God in Genesis 1 and 2. And Jesus anticipates this, like in communion, when he institutes the Lord's Supper. It's a meal that we eat looking backwards in remembrance of what God has done. But Jesus says that I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until I drink it anew in the Father of my kingdom in heaven. So it it cultivates this longing. It's the it's the ancient future meal that we look back in remembrance to what Jesus has done, but we look forward to a day of unbroken fellowship with God and with each other. And finally, it's safety. Uh, you and I are already fully known. We have been fully known. That's the way that it's worded in the uh, New American Standard, which I like, because it's just like heaping past tense on each other, like it's already happened. It's already there. Nothing to add to it, nothing to take away from it. Baseline reality of our lives is that we've already been known by God and we're loved. And I had to add the word anyway, because that's me. You're all lovable, right? Don't get me wrong. You guys are, you are the best. But as I'm preaching this, I think I have to add, he loves us anyway. Uh, Being known by another person is a bonus, but there's just reassurance and safety in being known and loved and comprehended by another person. To be who you are and to have the sense that somebody understands and loves you, that's what it means to be known. So, so to sort of fit this quickly back into its context, the end of chapter 12, Paul said, «Earnestly desire the greater gifts». So we long for and we earnestly desire the spiritual gifts because they're a sign pointing forward, but they're also a sign pointing to the fact that God is still here. He's still at work in our midst, that we have been fully known and we can pour ourselves out for others because God's love is the foundational reality. His love is patient. It is kind. He doesn't keep record of wrongs. It's compelling. That love is the foundation of, of our reality. And his love is never spent. His love, his generosity, his kindness, they're never scarce. They're pouring themselves out in self-sacrificing, self-giving ways. And in Jesus, that self-sacrificing love of God is what God is all about. So I'm gonna pray. And I can't remember from before church if Jacob's coming back up, but to have a time of prayer where where we pray about these virtues. So I'm going to turn it over to Jacob after I pray, and then, uh, or I'm going to turn it over to the worship team. Either way, when I pray afterward, something's definitely going to happen. There's definitely going to be something, and you're going to be surprised. You won't even know what it is. So anyway, I'll pray. God, we're thankful for uh, your word, and I pray that as we as we seek to think about your future and how that orients us now, I pray that you would give us grace and humility and just an openness to what you're doing inside us and around us. Not just as individuals, but as a community. Um, I pray that your spirit would do something in our midst. I pray that you would help us to be uh, open and vulnerable to each other, to be open and vulnerable with you, uh, to come to maturity, uh, and to recognize the gifts for what they are, uh, that they're signposts pointing to you, but that they, they need to be done in love. Um, I pray that your spirit would empower us to that end. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire.